Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, how we spent the strike on International Women's Day, plus listener mail on how to critically read feminist writers and thinkers, Cheeto Watch, what's Kellyanne up to, Representative Steve King and other racist liars, plus Inspector Gadget and all of our problematic faves. Hello from Austin, Texas. Oh my God. Hello. Tell me, is it everything it always is? Is it the best? <laughs> oh my God. It's like South by South nightmare, obviously. Uh, <laughs> it's like good to be back and see the friends. It is my least favorite time of the year to be here, though, because the weather is unpredictable. There's too many damn people. And yeah, it's like the festival itself is crazy. Yeah, I feel like often the biggest draw to a city is like the worst time or the worst reason to go there, you know, (laughs) any city, not just Austin, but particularly Austin. I am half sick, so apologies in advance for any like phlegmy noises or weird gross coughing that happens in the middle of this. Oh, no, feel better, (laughs) boo-boo. I mean, mouth breathing. It's so, so unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe what we could do is like a check-in on Day Without a Woman. How did how did your International Women's Day go? Went great. Wore red. I I don't think I like striked because for reasons that we mentioned before, but I had some really good like lady time. It was excellent. I love that. And it was I had some like really good conversation with a lot of like different women doing different kinds of jobs about how they handle it. So that was really illuminating what was the most interesting or like best or most surprising thing that you heard from a woman who was participating i was really surprised at how many of my lady friends in tech participated in the strike a lot of them were just like nope sorry like don't need to be here today just because from that corner of my world like i hear a lot about like well you know it like doesn't really make a difference or blah 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 I don't know. It was really like heartening to see. It was like, actually, no, like people like taking concrete actions on things. I love that. I was, I was flying that day. And so, um, actually like a great excuse to do what I probably should do all the time, which is like, you know, BYO snacks and plan ahead. But when I got to my destination, I had to take some kind of transportation to get to my hotel. I suppose maybe I could have like put out some sort of public call to like have some some stranger pick me up or whatever. But anyway, and I got out of the airplane and there were like two taxis waiting at this small airport. And one was driven by like, you know, a brown skinned person who looked to be an immigrant. And after chatting with him, found out that he was. And um, the other one was driven by a woman. And I had very much like I just got in the first one. But I was like, these are two great women's strike options. If you got to get in any cab. I think that that was my like primary strike breaking activity. But then, you know, only women owned businesses after that. It was pretty great. Do you want to listen to some voicemails that listeners left for us about how they spent the day? I would love that. Let's do it. Hi, Anna and Amina. I am calling from Madison, Wisconsin about my participation in 
On International Women's Day, I'm a student teacher, and I ended up not taking the day off. Even though a lot of my students did, I took the opportunity to give a lesson um, about using feminist critical lens to read Lady Macbeth to one of my classes. And in the other class, we used the feminist critical lens to um, read and watch some Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, um, wonderful feminist work. So uh, my name is Bridget, and you can use this on the show. Hi, Amina Ann and Gina. My name is Lauren. I'm calling from uh, Brooklyn, and you are welcome to use this on the show. Um, I had an amazing Women's Strike slash International Women's Day with about 20, 25 women um, just having great conversations, and we had food that was donated to us. My favorite thing that happened, though, was I uh, did not abide by a social media blackout, and that night I posted on Facebook um, as a joke. I posted, if you're a dude and I have ever helped you with anything, please Venmo me $20. Um, again, meant it as a joke, but within two hours, um, a variety of men in my life had Venmoed me $255. Some of it will be a donation to a progressive intersectional organization, and then part of it, I'm just going to use it to buy something I, uh, I like as a payment for years of unpaid emotional labor. Hi, this is Hannah calling from Charlottesville, Virginia. I spent International Women's Day striking from work, and I took the day off from social media, and I also hosted a potluck for a group of rad ladies at my house. Thanks. Thanks for the podcast. Bye. Hi, Amina and Anne. I'm Mary. I'm 21 years old, and I'm uh, from Flint, Michigan, but residing in East Lansing, Michigan. I'm a 21-year-old baby feminist who celebrated a day without a woman in a pretty unique way. I work for Senate Democrats in Michigan, and I work for communications, and normally all of the staff sits on the floor. On a day without a woman, all the ladies um, and most of our senators wore red. The lady staffers, such as myself, sat in the above gallery so that all of our colleagues and Republicans could see us. We were recognized by the floor, excuse me, on the floor (laughs) um, by Democrats, which is pretty cool. All right, bye. So yeah, we we got a letter that explained the following. My group of friends has an active Slack group that we use as a big group chat. In our private ladies-only channel, we decided to honor the strike by not providing any emotional labor in the other channels. Big surprise. When we told the men what we had done at the end of the day on Wednesday, most of them hadn't noticed or had only noticed that, quote, things seemed quiet or they, quote, just felt a little disappointed that no one commented on or emojied their post. The experiment, <laughs> I know, right? The experiment wound up being more informative for the ladies in the Slack group, and that we found out we really relied on using emoji as emotional support for people of all genders, and that we experienced real discomfort in holding back from giving men that pat on the back via emoji. It seems that part of our experience fighting our own internalized misogyny will be honing our Zen skills to learn to tolerate the discomfort we feel around the expectation of emotionally supporting men by default especially when we're not receiving that default support in return. Also, no surprise, the men weren't showering us in emojis or written responses of emotional support in our absence. Interesting. So interesting. Emotional labor via emoji. Who knew? Emoji, emotional labor. (laughs) Um, I I can't wait for the the academic paper that is bound to be written about this at some point.
answer a couple of mailbag questions. Let's do it. After some searching, I finally found a small feminist discussion group that seemed a good fit. As the group coordinator described it, the group started as a second wave feminist lesbians group, but expanded recently to include younger ladies of all orientations interested in getting politically active. All seemed well for the first few months of meetings. The group had been deemed a women-only space, which seemed okay on the surface. Some women said they felt more comfortable to speak up in a women-only meeting, and I can support that sentiment. But it started to slowly surface that the older women get really um, sketchy when it comes to discussing the inclusion of transgender women. During one meeting, when I outright asked if trans women are welcome to join the group, the group coordinator muttered that the group would need to discuss it and change the subject. Since then, any mention of the topic of including trans women has been met with more delay tactics and excuses that it's a touchy subject. I ended up talking to a couple of the younger people in the group about it, and they seem to have gotten the same vibe. We aren't sure what to do. Do we stay with a group that seems to be doing some things right, but thinks intersectionality is only for cisgender women, LOL, or do we leave and try to find or start another group? This is not hard. I think this is one of the easiest questions we've ever gotten, which is to say anyone who is sharing these kind of worried looks or has had a side conversation about not loving the way that this group is excluding trans women easy. That is your new group. Leave, form a new one. And I would say also like letting the organizers of the original group know that you are not okay with being part of a group that excludes trans women from its feminism and saying like, if you don't want to talk about it, if you think it's too touchy, cool choice on your part, not cool at all, but whatever. Like we're going to go talk about this in a context where that is better aligned with our feminist politics. Totally. Well put. This is not hard at all. Just be a little more brave all the time. It's like, what does it serve you to stay in this group at all if you know that it is, uh, as the kids say, problematic? It's like now you've aligned yourself with problematic people and you're implicated. Don't implicate yourself. Always leave. Yeah, and it sounds like like this person has tried to bring it up a few times and the group that she's currently a part of actively do not want to engage the question. And so to me, that makes it even easier, right? Like if they were interested in engaging, I think maybe there's a slightly higher burden to maybe say like, here's why I think you're doing it wrong or here's how I think you could be more inclusive. But the fact that they don't really even want to have the conversation to me, that's just a clear like bye. And maybe your group is going to be smaller with the other people, but you're right. No implications (laughs) in this bigger, like more flawed project. (laughs) I honestly, like, never understand this. I'm just like, if this is going to, like, ruin your reputation, you know, like, why are you still there? Also, it's so easy when somebody else rolls their eyes. You're like, oh, my God, at least there's two of us. Oh, my God, completely. (laughs) New group. (laughs) That's like, that's how that's how that rolls. It's like, you're not even alone. Yeah, I think. I think it's an important lesson, too, for perhaps for the group organizers to learn that this is so important to you, even though you don't identify as trans. Like, it's so important to you to be a part of an inclusive space that you don't want to be a part of their situation. Like, I think that they will probably learn that lesson by your departure. Yeah, you know, and it's also okay to just be like, if people are not where you are, it's okay to leave them behind. You don't have to be teaching all the time and explaining It's 2017. If you really have to take time out of your day to explain to people who say that they're feminist why trans women matter, then maybe you're hanging around like the wrong feminist. Just like go run, 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 and like stand up for what you believe. 
And like, sadly, in the year 2017, it's still probably necessary to get clarity on what a group means by woman only space. Like, I think that's the other lesson I take from this, this letter is like, how I define women only space appears to be very different from how some other people define women only space. It's true, right? But also like some of these things were like red flags from the beginning, right? It's like if someone tells you that they're like a second wave, uh, (laughs) oh, I guess it was like second wave feminist lesbian group. It's like the second part of that is fine. The first part of that is problematic. And it's like, if you know your history, you know exactly what happened to lesbians in the second wave. So all of these like labels, like people sometimes are really clear in like signaling to you how rigid they're going to be from the beginning. And you have to like see that for like what it is. Good luck with your new group. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, Good luck with your new group. Keep us posted. (laughs) Sometimes it works out really well. You're just like, oh, all these people are not happy here. New group. (laughs) Uh, Okay, next question. Ooh, so many feminist questions. Almost like we're a feminist podcast. I know, right? Almost like we've claimed that label, the separate podcast to discuss whether we've openly like (laughs) could slap that label on here. Um, Oh my gosh. Okay. I really appreciated your criticism of the Jessica Crispin interview on Jezebel. When I initially read it, I had misgivings. Hard to trust anyone who batches Rebecca Traster. That's what I'm saying. Indeed. Oh <laughs> Ugh, what a good litmus test. But I also thought, well, I'm not that well versed of this stuff and I trust Jezebel. I was relieved when I saw Amina's tweets about it and I'm grateful for you for discussing it on the podcast. There are a lot of other women who have said some questionable things in the line of outspoken academic slash intellectual who could write with a book attention grabbing title. I don't think I will or should agree with everything some of them say, but since you two are both a lot more knowledgeable about this, I was hoping you could give guidance on a few figures. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Note, I am sorry if this feels like a setup for people to say, Amina and Anne just bashed all these women. That's not my intention at all. I just want to know which women are actually doing the hard work of contributing by doing more than criticizing. There's a difference between constructive critique that engages with material movements and people in a respectful way and others who do so in a way that builds their platform at the expenses of what they criticize. Ahem, Jessica Crispin, Kellyanne, Megan, all of the Ivankas, etc. I don't want to imply that anyone who's newly exploring the feminist literature can't tell for themselves. I just don't want to accidentally pick up something extreme. But because I'm not yet fluent in the nuance and context of this, not rec- not recognizing it for what it is. I'm a librarian slash information scientist. Can you tell? If possible, could you weigh in on these? This is my favorite list in the whole. <laughs> uh, Katie Royf. Is that how you say her name? Royfie. I only ever read Royfie. it. I've never like said her name out loud. Katie Royfie. That one. Mm-hmm. Camille Paglia, Naomi Wolf, <laughs> Christina Hoffsummer. <laughs> lo- I'm in love with this list. Anyone else that should be read slash approached with caution and or only after a thorough grounding in bell hooks. Well, here's the thing. Everybody should be read or approached with caution, like including <laughs> us. Right. Including us. So that answers the second part of that question. Yeah, I mean, when I look at like, or like listen to that list of, I was going to say problematic faves, but they're not even faves, just like problematic people who are. I know, right? Like yeah. we can actually like this list is not even, let's just go through the list. Christina Hoff Summers is a 100% a quack. Christina Hoff Summers is not a feminist. I am comfortable saying that. She's a quack conservative who is sort of of that strain of air quote feminism who's like making more money is good for women and so like 
And so anything that helps business is good for women. And so I'm a Republican. Forget everything else. Like that's kind of like my top line view of the position she's advocated in the past, which is true. Women like money and need it. But like it is a very kind of convenient conservative feminism. Yeah, but she's always talking about things like victim sure. feminism and a big gender tell. feminism. I'm just like, where who like where did you learn this? Or actually, I know at the American Enterprise Institute where <laughs> you are a fellow in residence. It's like I feel like she would seem attractive to like people who are libertarians, but really a lot of her stuff is always like grounded in how does this affect men? Whenever somebody's like, what about the men? Or like, feminists don't hate men. I'm just like, that's not even what the conversation is about. Like, I see you also like very intellectually dishonest. I am fine like putting her in that box. It's like, goodbye. Yeah, like talking exclusively about women's like right to make money being like the primary gender-based right that that like women need and then like not actually being pro-choice either, which is, like, <laughs> I don't know. There's like a bunch of like contradictions as well, like just baked into anyone who's who's likely to be a fellow at a conservative think tank and even like pseudo adopting the feminist label i know and then the list gets murkier naomi wolf (laughs) oh my god um where do we even begin like i don't know i mean i think that the beauty myth (laughs) the beauty myth that's where we begin i guess (laughs) yeah that's where that's the beginning we can start there yeah you know also like somebody who like writes for national review a lot but also has written for Mother Jones and the Atlantic. So like, you know, I guess like I can't make that argument. Naomi Wolf in particular is a difficult case, right? Because it's like you could like do some selective Instagram quoting or like Tumblr excerpting of Naomi Wolf and be like, that makes sense. Like that seems to like resonate with my politics. But it's like the overall project that I don't think I'm really on board with. And it's like nothing says that you have to in order to read or be informed by a writer who claims the feminist label. Nothing says you have to like love the, that person's entire body of work or like put them in a, I am pro Naomi Wolf or I am anti Naomi Wolf like category. Like the world is way more complex and it's like your like views on the world are probably not going to be exactly represented by any one thinker. Like that's how I wow. kind of feel about it. Nuance, nuance and Friedman. I love it. <laughs> and like, you know, and so to this question of like, the fact that it comes from a librarian and information scientist, it's like, it's funny that at the end of her letter, she mentions like, you know, bell hooks, because it's like, no one even, I mean, I don't even agree with bell hooks about everything. Like, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't agree with bell hooks on like a lot. But again, like foundational text, right? Right. I think that that point that you made earlier about just like being a critical reader all the time, and questioning all of this is really important. Because at the end of the day, it's not about individual feminists. You and I don't even agree on some things. <laughs> like, Several things. You know I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, do you want to go through them? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's like, we don't, we don't agree on some stuff. And you know, I think that if anything, the thing that like unifies us is that like, I know that you have skin in the game. I know that you come from an intellectually honest place. And like, that makes me okay, but it's also not going to, like, ruin my complete, like, faith in all of feminism if one day you say something, like, completely nuts, right. you know? Or it turns out you were, like, a Megyn Kelly in the training, and you, like, you know, you're just, like, take your cape off, and you're, like, crossing over to the dark side. It's not going to shake my faith because it was never about individual people. Like, it's not. So... I think that that's kind of like the fallacy here, right? Is that like, don't put your faith in like humans because those people will disappoint you. 
Yeah, and I get the temptation or the desire when you are new to feminism or new to thinking about how feminism relates to like your own beliefs about the world, the desire to kind of have a person or a handful of people to be like your council or like your Supreme Court of feminism where you can have like, like, okay, like if these four people all think this way on an issue, then like that's the way I'm going to think too. And like the truth is, I do think that... Um, it's more difficult to figure out where certain writers or like public thinkers or activists are coming from when you haven't been following like certain issues for a long time. Like I think it is something that kind of, it gets easier and more complicated the longer that you've been um, thinking about yourself as a feminist and feeling attuned to like certain debates. However, there's something kind of cool about being new and being like, okay, just read this interview with Camille Padilla first stop like first stop where does her money come from like second stop exactly. like, yeah like what is the, like what are like the most recognized books she's ever read like what are the kind of like lines that she has drawn in the sand the internet is especially if you are well versed in like information science i feel like that that info um before you decide that you are going to be like camille padley is like new biggest fan you can like do a quick google and like figure out maybe how you feel about her totally. in a deeper way it's like yeah, the person who asked this question is, like, better equipped than, like, most people to, like, suss out bullshit anyway, you know, and actually, like, get good information and become super well-versed in this. So I have full faith that a librarian slash information scientist is, like, going to make great decisions. Totally. And even to the point she mentioned up front in her letter, hard to trust anyone who bashes Rebecca Traster. I agree with that. But again, like I don't agree with Rebecca 100% of the time either. It's just like to your earlier point, Amina, it's like I know her to be someone who generally does her reporting, who like generally tries to take a nuanced view of things, but who, you know, has a series of strong beliefs that in general align with mine, but not completely. And so like part of this is just thinking about your own beliefs about the world too, not just like what do these people say? Totally. Like what you believe is valid. I am generally charmed by Camille Paglia because she's everybody's like, uh, like she's the problematic faves, problematic fave, problematic <laughs> fave. You know? so, <laughs> it's always like whenever some lady is like, and then Camille Paglia said, I'm just like, yeah, this is, this is, this is not going to end well. This is not going to end well. But like, you know, an intellectually rigorous woman, I can't hate on a lot of her opinions, but I cannot hate on like how she gets to them. So there is that. Which one is Katie Royfe? Which one of the Atlantic white ladies is Katie Royfe? Because I feel like there's two that I always confuse. Oh my God. She's the one who was like, um, back in, I want to say the 90s, pretty early on, she was like, campus rape, it's not a big deal. It's just feminists who like to be victims. This is my like Anne Wikipedia version of how she first burst on the scene. It, it was like early clickbait lesson, actually, now that I think about it. Oh, yeah. The book was called The Morning After Sex, Fear, and Feminism on Campus. It's from 1993. Yeah, I was eight years old. This is not relevant to me. (laughs) I mean, I do think it's relevant Um, because she was like... Which is such an ageist thing to say, but it's like... I find that a lot of these women like found controversy when I was had not found my consciousness yet. So in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of easy to dismiss, which is not necessarily fair. But there's a part of me that's also like, this is so part of this like 90s like women's backlash you know like 90s women were supposed to be like tough bitches and so a lot of women who like found their voice like bashing other women like thrived in that decade oh yeah like super um you know 
Backlash by Susan Faludi. That's all I have to say about that era. <laughs> um, even though that was technically actually the 80s that she was, I mean, some of it was early 90s. Yeah, she was writing, she was writing about the yeah. 80s. Yeah, that book is good. Anyway, that was the book that I was like, oh, when I was a kid, this is what was happening in feminism before I clued in. <laughs> it's like I, one, of the, <laughs> one of the things I read like in college that was like, oh, wow, like while you were sleeping slash in grade school. <laughs> it's also like really funny when you like read the Katie Royfies and Camille Paglias are they're kind of like closer to our generation or closer to being our contemporaries, I guess. But the more you read about like feminist history, you realize that these debates have just been like going on forever and ever and ever and ever, you know? And also you realize that no one is like perfectly aligned with you or like perfectly aligned with modern politics that you might have. That's how I feel. Yeah, this is amazing. I'm reading the like tiny underdeveloped Wikipedia entry for morning after. Mm-hmm. It's like writing for the New Yorker, Katha Pollitt, another like feminist, great feminist, gave the book a negative review. Pollitt's review was in turn criticized by Christina Hoff Summers who <laughs> still feminism. The morning after received a positive response from Camille Paglia who called, like, you know, I'm just like, also like, let's not forget, these people are like professional writers, like at the end of the day, you know, and everybody's like trying to make a point and everybody's trying to be known and everybody wants to be an intellectual. So like, trust no one, trust no one, like just do your research. Yeah, I was just re- looking at this interview with Katie Royfe too, where like she says, quote, I've written about all kinds of things you might think were taboo subjects, but there's something about this that's more of a taboo. This is about a newer book. But like the idea of a writer who identifies as someone who writes about topics that are difficult to talk about, like and likes to sell books. It's like you do the math. <laughs> it's true, because it's also like women have been trying to break into like being public intellectuals for a long time. Surprise, surprise that when you take a controversial uh, stand on things, you get heard more. Right. The answer is there's no shortcut to being a critical reader. And I refuse to personally endorse any one public feminist. (laughs) That's right. I endorse myself. (laughs) Like, that's it. I'm not bringing anybody else with me. But that's kind of how it should be. That is how it should be. But unfortunately, in the era of internet, I find that a lot of women especially our generation like love to cling on to other people and it's like no it's like the longer you are on the internet too you see this it's like your heroes will disappoint you like don't follow them don't like see what they're talking about right it's why controversies feel so the outrage cycle is so ridiculous and it's like actually if you just like went ahead and said i enjoy certain things that certain people say i'm gonna remain like skeptical in general and i will do my own research and i'll find out about whatever every woman for herself style i find that you like become less mad about a lot of things because you didn't put your faith like every egg in like one basket totally and one of i mean i don't know the flip side of that is one of the nice things about having all of the resources of the internet at our disposal is like for me the times when i am most likely to question my opinion on something or like my sort of gut level reaction is when it has to do with something that is outside of my personal experience like if there's something that i have experienced firsthand like chances are i have some sort of passionate opinion on it but if it's something that is like has never or maybe even will never factor in to my life like that is where i'm like okay well i'm going to start reading things from a variety of women who have been affected or like are more affected by this question that this writer is tackling and then use that to also inform what I think. Cause like, I think part of like being a new feminist or whatever is not just saying like, I don't have 
the ability to form an opinion, but like, I don't know that I have all the information I might want to have to form one. And so the nice thing is it's like when you read an incendiary essay on something like campus sexual assault, and that is not an experience you've had. There are a lot of things that you can go looking for (laughs) that, that explain like, how do survivors feel about that? How do advocates feel about that? Like, and I think you can pretty quickly probably through reading some of that, come to a more informed conclusion on yourself that has nothing to do with who wrote the original article that inspired you to go searching. But like, do you remember where you were the day that Bell Hooks called Beyonce a terrorist? Oh my God. I mean, probably with my phone open (laughs) texting you. Like, I don't know where. I remember like looking at my phone. (laughs) And just how like crazy shocking it was, you know? I'm just like, I'm glad that I had all of these like modes of protecting myself because that was potentially like one of the most devastating things that could have factored in for me. But instead, it ended up being like a very funny lol. And to this day... To this day, it cracks me up because like everybody, you know, I'm just like, everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody knows what they're doing and everybody knows how they're trying to stay famous. So yeah, like trying trying to stay relevant. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like Bell Hooks now is like, like always in like talks with Hermione, whoever that actress is. Like, I always forget her name. Don't remember. The new, the new Hollywood baby feminist, Emma Watson, right? (laughs) Emma Watson. Emma Watson. Maybe it's Watson. I don't know. It's Watson. You mean Beauty uh, of Beauty and the Beast? (laughs) Yes, Beauty and the Beast, that one, Um, (laughs) which apparently we need to go see. I don't know. Problematic, but we'll see it. And, uh, you know, but it's like, that was really interesting to me. I was like, wow, you like Bell Hooks, like somebody who is like critically important to like women's history and politics and thoughts like getting embroiled in this like great controversy i was like even bell hooks knows how to stay relevant you know like this is this is great this is how the game is played right it's true it's like people think clickbait is a new phenomenon not really just the term no if anybody knows how to stay relevant it's like old school feminists oh my god (laughs) Yeah, like they invented they invented outrage. They invented like everything. It's like don't worry, these ladies know exactly what they're doing. But also, every time I think about that and I laugh, it's like Beyonce is a terrorist. <laughs> I mean, like just there's something about the phrasing of it too. It's like if if she was just like I don't like Beyonce or something, it would be different. But like the is a terrorist. I mean, no, she like 100 percent like called her a terrorist. <laughs> Beyonce is not even the most problematic of the like celebrity feminists. So like, I thought it was hilarious that that's who she went after. Uh, maybe that has to do with like which celebrity she's actually clued into more so than like who is the most problematic celebrity feminist. Personal. Yeah, she's like Hermione. She's like Hermione and Beyonce. These are the two I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but again, you know, like it's like stay like stay woke, stay informed because this is all a game. Like stay on top of the game. Yep.
Ann Friedman, noted feminist terrorist. What's next on this podcast? <laughs> I mean, do you want to take another question? Sure, hit me. Okay. Oh, here's another like in- info research question. Maybe too close, but you can decide. You can decide if you want to answer it. I'm going to just hit you with it. Okay, here's the question. I am part of a small group of women in southern Vermont who are organizing to pass some new reproductive justice legislation through our state government. Awesome. We have some lawyer friends and we've done considerable research, but I'm finding it hard to keep abreast of all of the anti-choice bills popping up around the country. Besides the Guttmacher Institute and copious Google alerts, how do you three collect and vet your reproductive rights information? I guess I'm asking if you have any special tricks or which resources and clearinghouses you find most helpful. I have no tricks, <laughs> not even Google alerts. I'm, I get like the state level alerts from NARAL. So I would say that if you care about what's happening in your state legislative wise for when it comes to reproductive justice issues, make sure you're on the email list for NARAL. And then, yeah, and like Guttmacher does like good national data collection statistics about what abortion and contraception use rates look like, but then also other things that have to do with legislation. And so honestly, that's like kind of it. It's not magic. Be like, who works on these issues in my state? Follow those organizations and get on their email list. Like, that's how I feel about that. Yeah. And who writes about this in kind of my state or my region? That's like, that's the only thing I do. I think I just follow a bunch of people on Twitter who write about this stuff. Right. As you can tell, not super informed in this area, but I feel like I just learned a lot. (laughs) I mean, I feel like this person already knew the answer and was like, if you've already got copious Google alerts set up, like you're winning. It's like you're doing great. I don't know that you right. These these are like the people in class who like raise their hands to ask for the like, what more can I do? And the teacher is like, you're doing everything. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. Right. Yeah. Like you're already an A student. There's no extra credit here. Yeah. You're already an A student. <laughs> in fact, you could teach this class. Yeah. People keep tweeting me about Kellyanne Conway on the Today Show because I actually watched it. Like, Mina, what do you what do you think of Savannah Guthrie and Kellyanne Conway this morning? I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. One, people forget Savannah Guthrie is a lawyer, or <laughs> she has a lot. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let me triple check that. I love Savannah a lot. I don't want to do fake news about Savannah. I'm pretty sure Savannah has a law degree. She just came back from maternity leave. Shout out baby Pablo. Uh, Baby Charlie. (laughs) That's also fake news. Are you looking for the actual degree? That's right. (laughs) She was a a legal analyst. That's right. Oh, yeah. Regularly reporting on trials throughout the country. That's right. So people forget this. (laughs) She also specialized in white collar criminal defense. (laughs) A.K.A. Kellyanne (laughs) Conway. Yeah, the interview was really funny, actually. I was watching it when I was getting uh, ready this morning. Kellyanne was very low energy. She's so, like, what a demon. Because she's so predictable at this point. It's like when she comes on and she does her, like, I don't really know what you guys are talking about. 
the American public just really wants health insurance and no fake news or whatever. And she does the low energy thing. It's because she knows that she's going to get roasted on that interview. <laughs> but it was also this like insane, like white lady jujitsu watching like which one of them, Savannah or Kellyanne would have the most disingenuous like smile, you know, like kill them with your smile kind of thing. And I was just, I was like, wow, this is like, they should teach this at law school, at like liar school and at like everything. It was so crazy. But the whole time, yeah, it's like Savannah was like, all due respect, Kellyanne, big smile. You didn't really answer my question. Big smile. <laughs> and Kellyanne was wearing the like gaudiest necklace and it kept making so much noise every time she moved. Oh my God. <laughs> because I guess it was like super close to the microphone and she just like kept lying about everything. It was like, it was pretty, it was like delightful. But I was like, I forgot about you, Savannah. Welcome back from maternity leave. <laughs> like, I like you a lot. I feel like that strategy is like in a way so classic like mean girls, like so classically gendered, like obviously, yes, like white girl, but the the idea of I'm going to say something that I know is completely out there or completely reprehensible or like total bullshit and do it while like smiling. Yeah, but it's like, that's like part of the Kellyanne Conway tactics, Oh, completely. You know, is the, it's like she either is really like doggedly pursuing this like weirdo lie, like Barack Obama's spying on Donald Trump via his microwave and she'll like say that without like flinching or then she does this like weird like acts like a very I don't know she like pulls out this like lady charm that is really disingenuous and makes me always makes me really uncomfortable because I'm just like I see where you are going with this this is the kind of stuff I feel like when you're a woman, you're really attuned to in other women where you're just like, oh my God, you about to pull the woman card. And I feel that like Republican women do it in a way that they think is really subtle, but actually is just like screaming. For me, it's like very arresting, like the whole thing. But to see somebody else like fight her on that level and win was like beautiful. I was just like, oh man, like this is a dangerous game to play. But once we're in the mud, like there's no going back. There's something about it that feels like about Kellyanne's whole project that that feels almost like performance art to me. That is just like so like, you know, mentioning like the incredible like Barack Obama tapped Trump's toaster or like whatever, <laughs> like like the beyond like above the top stuff that she's saying. It would be such a pleasure to watch someone invent lies and deliver them this way, like as a piece of performance art. Like what's really sad is that it's just the news. Yeah, and the thing that's really sad is that, like, she can keep getting away with it, right? Is that at this point, it's like all of the reporters are exasperated with her. The public is exasperated with her. But she still gets a platform to say really incendiary, like, like lies. Mm -hmm. I'm just waiting for the day where somebody finally says, like, you are a liar. I was like, because that's where, this is where this should be headed. It makes no sense to, like, smile at her. And at the end, you know, everybody's always like, thanks so much for coming on today. Like, George Stephanopoulos was so, like, so visibly, like, angry at her, you know, but still has to play this, like, well, I guess you were here and you said these things and he has to interpret everything that she says. Just stop having her all together or just call her a liar on the air. Like, this is the only, there's only two ways this ends. I know, but then, like, people like us keep talking about it and people keep sending, like, you the links to it. And, like, they they have such an incentive. Like, like people who, like, book her are not, like, thinking about democracy or, like, spreading, like, important information to voters or anything like that. Like, it's just, like, what do people want to watch? And, like, people want to watch her tell outrageous lies 
in state majority. They just want to spread drama. And I've already discussed my my whole theory here that the reason these shows keep booking her is so that these reporters can come out like looking well because they were tough on her, you know? Yeah. This is just garbage. But it's also, it's like I watch it and, and it's like watching it, like a movie that just like fucks with your mind. It's like, are you serious? You're just lying. You're just lying and nobody's calling you a liar. What kind of world do we live in? I mean, I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> like, unfortunately, I like cannot bring myself to answer that question. Yeah, it's the same thing with the like crazy Iowa like congressman, like Steve. Oh Kahn, my like, god! Are, I was like, you're like an actual like white nationalist, like racist, and nobody will call you that. They're all like incendiary comments, inflammatory comments. I'm just like, what does a white person have to do around here to get called a racist anymore? Like, this is crazy. Yeah, I mean, the New York Times tweet about Steve King's comments with essentially being like any babies that aren't white are not our babies, the broader like our the government, Americans. Like, it's like, it was like this deliberately, like, not white people or other. Like, that is literally what the comment said. And the New York Times tweet was, Iowa congressman's inflammatory statements seen as echoing principles of white nationalism. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm like, this is not the echo. This is the actual message. Yeah, a choice, not an echo. Phyllis Slafly joke for you there. Um, but like, but for real, like, and it's, it's like like a deliberate statement that was like retweeted by David Duke. Yeah, his, he was like, listen, I love this white nationalist Dutch candidate for higher office. And I'm going to like, favorably tweet about this other white supremacist in Europe and then be retweeted by David Duke, domestic white supremacist. And like all along the line, no one will actually say that this representative Steve King from Iowa is a white nationalist himself. Wow. Like we are living in wild times. Oh, I forgot to tell you the one funny thing about Kellyanne's fake news tour this morning Mm -hmm. is that, uh, God, I forget on which network it was. They like asked her if she had proof or whatever, and she's like, "I'm not Inspector Gadget," <laughs> <laughs> and I like couldn't stop laughing. I was just like, "Oh my god, this is like we are so doomed. Our democracy is so doomed." Speaking of like faves that I don't remember is problematic. Like I was a big Inspector Gadget fan. I'm like, I don't know, I don't want to go back to that. Like and find out that it was actually like really terrible <laughs> in some way. Uh, my cousins were all really big Inspector Gadget fans. If I'm honest, I don't really remember a lot of it. I just was always so struck by how incompetent he was. And I was like, this is not a good role model for children. Well, no, actually, the whole point of the show, and I distinctly remember why I liked it, is that he has, I don't know if it's like a daughter or a niece, or he has like a young girl who's his sidekick, and she does all of the heavy lifting and solves all of the cases. And then people are like, Inspector Gadget has done it again. And it really affirmed my belief that like the adults around me were incompetent when I was a child and was like, oh, like this show like is is just reflecting the reality that like this little girl is doing all the hard work and getting no credit. (laughs) I'm doing the Google search to find out. Inspector Gadget are problematic. <laughs> what comes up? It's like go go gadget political litmus test. <laughs> yeah. Wow, it already autofilled. Let's see. Oh my god, no. I wow. don't know. I don't know if I'm you're, ready for this. <laughs> oh my god. Your fave is problematic, Inspector Gadget. No doubt. Tumblr. Oh. Let's see what the evidence is. There's no evidence. It just says your fave is problematic, Inspector Gadget. Okay, great. Let's see. So is there no evidence? 
Oh, it's his niece. Okay, so here, I, I just went to Wikipedia. A dim-witted cyborg police <laughs> inspector is how he's described. And his niece, Penny, is the one who solves all the cases. Also, the dog, Brian. Penny. So it's like a little girl and a dog who are, like, taking down a global, like, evil conspiracy. Okay, there's no actual evidence that he is problematic, except for the <laughs> fact that he takes credit for a little girl's work, now that I know. Okay, that is the ultimate. He, every episode ends with like him taking credit for a little girl's work. So I think like we can declare that problematic. And your fave is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I feel like, wait, what is, oh what is a childhood thing that you have held on to and not like explored for its pl- problematic implications? My entire childhood, probably. Oh my God. I just want I mean, to be able to say... My childhood was problematic because I grew up reading, like, French comic books, which, let me tell you, that's, like, <laughs> the epitome of racism in, like, colonialism explained. So, I think I, I made my peace with the fact that my childhood was problematic a long time ago. Right. All right. Well, this I mean, everything like, about what? my childhood okay. was also problematic, but it was just, like, you know... I don't... Wow. I'm newly Expect thinking... Of ins- gadget did not even expect this today. <laughs> All it's right. It's okay. Okay, I have to run to uh, South by Southwest activation. I love okay. saying those words. So <laughs> I will catch you very soon, lady. Yes, we'll see you on the internet frequently. We'll see you on the internet. Please pray I get home in this snowstorm. Oh my God, all the pro- prayer hands emoji, and that's not emotional labor, that's sincere. I really hope you make it home. <laughs> <laughs> the emotional the emotional labor of emojis. Emojis. That is, is going to have me shook. That's going to have me shook for the rest of the day. I can't wait till someone sends us the paper, the academic paper about it. You know, it's true though. I realize that like whenever like dudes in my life like complain or like need affirmation or whatever, I just like be sending them the thumbs up because I don't have anything else to say. (laughs) Uh, Oh my God. Wow, wow, wow. This modern world we live in. (laughs) How evil. All right, thumbs up. Talk to you later. (laughs) Thumbs up. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. You can find us so many places on the internet. On our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. Download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts or on iTunes where we'd love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us, find us on Instagram or Facebook, all using the handle callyrgf or email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin, and all other music you heard today was composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalbeck. That's me.